Thersha Morgan and by P.D. Espensky, read by Alice Flanagan, Chapter 6. A series of analogies and comparisons are used for the definition of that which can be and that which cannot be in the region of higher dimension. Fencher, Hinton and many others employ this method. They imagine worlds of one and two dimensions and out of the relations of lower dimensional worlds to higher dimensional ones, they deduce possible relations of our world to one of four dimensions. Just as out of the relations of points to lines, of lines to surfaces, and of surfaces to solids, we deduce the relations of our solids to four-dimensional ones. Let us try to investigate everything that this method of analogy can yield. Let us imagine a world of one dimension. It will be a line. Upon this line, let us imagine living beings. Upon this line, which represents the universe for them, they will be able to move forward and backward only and these beings will be at the points or segments of a line. Nothing will exist for them outside their line, and they will not be aware of the line upon which they are living and moving. For there will exist only two points, ahead and behind, or maybe just one point ahead. Noticing the change in states of these points, the one-dimensional being will call these changes phenomena. If we suppose the line upon which the one-dimensional being lives to be passing through the different objects of our world, then of all these objects, the one-dimensional being will perceive one point only. If different bodies intersect this line, the one-dimensional being will sense them as the appearance, or more or less prolonged existence, and the disappearance of a point. This appearance, existence and disappearance of a point will constitute a phenomenon. Phenomena according to the character and properties of passing objects and the velocity of the properties of their motion, for the one-dimensional being will be constant or variable, long or short timed, periodical or unperiodical. But the one-dimensional being will be absolutely unable to understand or explain the constancy or variability, the duration or brevity, the periodicity or unperiodicity of the phenomena of his world and will regard them simply as properties pertaining to them. The solids intersecting his line may be different, but for the one-dimensional being, all phenomena will be absolutely identical. Just the appearance or disappearance of a point. The phenomena will differ only in the duration and greater or less periodicity. Such strange monotony and similarity of the diverse and heterogeneous phenomena of our world will be the characteristic peculiarity of the one-dimensional world. Moreover, if we assume that the one-dimensional being possesses memory, it is clear that recalling all the points seen by him as phenomena, he will refer them to time. The point which was, this is the phenomenon already non-existent, and the point which may appear tomorrow, this is the phenomenon which does not exist yet. All of our space except one line will be in the category of time, i.e. something wherefrom phenomena come and into which they disappear. And the one-dimensional being will declare that the idea of time arises for him out of the observation of motion, that is to say, out of the appearance and disappearance of points. These will be considered as temporal phenomena, beginning at that moment when they become visible, and ending, ceasing to exist, at that moment when they become invisible. The one-dimensional being will not be in a position to imagine that the phenomenon goes on existing somewhere, though invisibly to him or he will imagine it is existing somewhere on his line, far ahead of him. We can imagine this one-dimensional being more vividly. Let us take an atom, hovering in space, or simply a particle of dust, carried along by the air, 
and let us imagine that this atom or particle of dust possesses a consciousness, i.e. separates himself from the outside world and is conscious only of that which lies in the line of his motion and with which he himself comes in contact. He will then be a one-dimensional being in the full sense of the word. He can fly and move in all directions, but it will always seem to him that he is moving upon a single line. Outside of this line will be for him only great nothingness. The whole universe will appear to him as one line. He will feel none of the turns and angles of his line, for to feel an angle it is necessary to be conscious of that which lies to right or left, above or below. In all other respects such being will be absolutely identical with the before described imaginary being living upon the imaginary line. Everything that he comes in contact with, that is, everything that he is conscious of, will seem to him to be emerging from time, i.e. from nothing, and vanishing into time, i.e. into nothing. This nothing will be our world. All our world except one line will be called time and will be counted as actually non-existent. Let us next consider the two-dimensional world and the being living on a plane. The universe of this being will be one great plane. Let us imagine beings on this plane having the shape of points, lines and flat geometrical figures. The objects and solids of that world will have the shape of flat geometrical figures too. In what manner will the being living on such a plane universe cognize his world? First of all, we can affirm that he will not feel the plane upon which he lives. He will not do so because he will feel the objects, i.e. figures which are on the plane. He will feel the lines which limit them, and for this reason he will not feel his plane, for in that case he will not be in a position to discern the lines. The lines will differ from the plane in that they produce sensations, therefore they exist. The plane does not produce sensations, therefore it does not exist. Moving on the plane, the two-dimensional being, feeling no sensations, will declare that nothing now exists. After having encountered some figure, having sensed its lines, he will say that something appeared. But gradually, by the process of reasoning, the two-dimensional being will come to the conclusion that the figures he encounters exist on something or in something. Thereupon he may name such a plane, he will not know indeed that it is a plane, the ether. Accordingly, he will declare that the ether fills all space, but differs in its qualities from matter. By matter, he will mean lines. Having come to this conclusion, the two-dimensional being will regard all processes as happening in his ether, i.e. in his space. He will not be in a position to imagine anything outside of this ether, that is, outside of his plane. If anything, proceeding out of his plane, comes in contact with his consciousness, then he will either deny it or regard it as something subjective, the creation of his own imagination, or else he will believe that it is proceeding right on the plane, in the ether, as are all other phenomena. Sensing lines only, the plane being will not sense them as we do. First of all, he will see no angle. It is extremely easy for us to verify this by experiment. If we hold before our eyes two matches inclined one to the other in a horizontal plane, then we shall see a line. To see an angle, we shall have to look from above. The two-dimensional being cannot look from above and therefore cannot see the angle. But measuring the distance between the lines of different solids, 
of his world, the two-dimensional being will come continually in contact with the angle, and he will regard it as a strange property of the line, which is sometimes manifest and sometimes is not. That is, he will refer the angle to time. He will regard it as a temporary effervescent phenomenon, a change in the state of a solid or as motion. It is difficult for us to understand this. It is difficult to imagine how an angle can be regarded as motion, but it must be absolutely so and cannot be otherwise. If we try to represent to ourselves how the plane being studies the square, then certainly we shall find that for the plane being the square will be a moving body. Let us imagine that the plane being is opposite one of the angles of the square. He does not see the angle. Before him is a line, but a line possessing very curious properties. Approaching this line, the two-dimensional being observes that a strange thing is happening to the line. One point remains in the same position, and the other points are withdrawing back from both sides. We repeat that a two-dimensional being has no idea of an angle. Apparently, the line remains the same as it was, yet something is happening to it without doubt. The plane being will say that the line is moving, but so rapidly that it is imperceivable to sight. If the plane being goes from the angle and follows along a side of the square, then the side will become immovable. When he comes to the angle, he will notice the motion again. After going round the square several times, he will establish the fact of regular, periodical motions of the line. Quite probably in the mind of the plane being, the square will assume the form of a body possessing the property of periodical motions, invisible to the eye, but producing definite physical effects and in brackets, molecular motion. Or it will remain there as a perception of periodical moments of rest and motion in one complex line, and still more probably, it will seem to be a rotating body. Quite possibly, the plane being will regard the angle as his own subjective perception and will doubt whether any objective reality corresponds to this subjective perception. Nevertheless, he will reflect that if there is action yielding to measurement, so must there be the cause of it, consisting in the change of the state of the line, i.e. in motion. The lines visible to the plane being he may call matter, and the angles motion, that is, he may call the broken line with an angle moving matter, and truly to him such a line by reason of its properties will be quite analogous to matter in motion. If a cube were set to rest upon the plane upon which the plane being lives, then the cube will not exist for the two-dimensional being, but only the square face of the cube in contact with the plane will exist for him, as a line with periodical motions. Correspondingly, all the solids lying outside of his plane in contact with it or passing through it will not exist for the plane being. The planes of contact or cross-sections of the bodies will alone be sensed, but if the planes or sections move or change, then the two-dimensional being will think, indeed, that the cause of the change or motion is in the bodies themselves, i.e. right there on his plane. As has been said, the two-dimensional being will regard the straight lines only as immobile matter. Irregular lines and curves will seem to him as moving. So far as really moving lines are concerned, that is, lines limiting the cross-sections or planes of contact passing through or moving along the plane, these will be, for the two-dimensional being, something inconceivable and incommensurable. It will be as though there is in them the presence of something independent, depending upon itself only, animated, 
This effect will proceed from two causes. He can measure the immobile angles and curves, the properties of which the two-dimensional being calls motion, for the reason that they are immobile. Moving figures, on the contrary, he cannot measure because the changes in them will be out of his control. These changes will depend on the properties of the whole body and its motion, and of the whole body the two-dimensional being will know only one side or section. Not perceiving the existence of this body, and contemplating the motion pertaining to the sides and sections, he probably will regard them as living beings. He will affirm that there is something in them which differentiates them from other bodies, vital energy, or even soul, that something will be regarded as inconceivable and really will be inconceivable to the two-dimensional being because to him it is the result of an incomprehensible motion of inconceivable solids. If we imagine an immobile circle upon the plane, then for the two-dimensional being it will appear as the moving line with some very strange and to him inconceivable motions. The two-dimensional being will never see that motion, Perhaps he will call such motion molecular motion, i.e. the movement of the minutest invisible particles of matter. Moreover, a circle rotating around an axis passing through its centre for the two-dimensional being will differ in some inconceivable way from the immobile circle. Both will appear to be moving, but moving differently. For the two-dimensional being, a circle or a square rotating around its centre on account of its double motion, will be an inexplicable and incommensurable phenomenon, like a phenomenon of life for a modern physicist. Therefore, for the two-dimensional being, a straight line will be immobile matter, a broken or curved line, matter in motion, and a moving line, living matter. The centre of the circle or a square will be inaccessible to the plane being, just as the centre of a sphere or a cube made of solid matter is inaccessible to us. And for the two-dimensional being, even the idea of a centre will be incomprehensible, since he possesses no idea of a centre. Having no idea of phenomenon proceeding outside of the plane, that is, outside of his space, the plane being will think of all phenomena as proceeding on his plane, as he has stated. And all phenomena which he regards as proceeding on his plane, he will consider as being in casual interdependence, one with another. That is, he will think that the phenomena is the effect of another which has happened right there and the cause of a third which will happen right on the same plane. If a multicoloured cube passes through the plane, the plane being will perceive the entire cube and its motion as a changing colour of lines lying in his plane. Thus if a blue line replaces a red one, then the plane being will regard the red line as a past event. He will not be in a position to realise the idea that the red line is still existing somewhere. He will say that the line is single, but that it becomes blue as a consequence of the certain causes of a physical character. If the cube moves backwards so that the red line appears again after the blue one, then for the two-dimensional being this will constitute a new phenomenon. He will say that the line became red again. For the being living on a plane, everything above and below, if the plane be horizontal, and on the right or left, if the plane be vertical, will be existing in time, in the past and in the future. That which in reality is located outside of the plane will be regarded as non-existent, either as that which is already past, i.e. as something which has disappeared, ceased to be, will never return, or in the future, i.e. as non-existent, not manifested, and as a thing of potentiality.
Let us imagine that a wheel with the spokes painted different colours is rotating through the plane upon which the plane being lives. To such a being, all the motion of the wheel will appear as a variation of the colour of the line of intersection of the wheel and the plane. The plane being will call this variation of colour of the line a phenomenon, and observing these phenomena, he will notice in them a certain succession. He will know that the black line is followed by the white one, the white by the blue, and the blue by the red, and so on. If simultaneously with the appearance of the white line some other phenomenon occurs, say the ringing of a bell, the two-dimensional being will say that the white line is the cause of that ringing. The change of the colour of the lines in the opinion of the two-dimensional being will depend on causes lying right in his plane. Any presupposition of the possibility of the existence of causes lying outside of the plane he will characterise as fantastic and entirely unscientific. It will seem so to him because he will never be in a position to represent the wheel to himself, i.e. the parts of the wheel on both sides of the plane. After a rough study of the colour of the lines and knowing the order of their sequence, the plane being, perceiving one of them, say the blue one, will think that the black and the white ones have already passed, i.e. disappeared, ceased to exist, gone into the past. And those lines which have not yet appeared, the yellow, the green and so on, and the new white and black ones still to come, do not yet exist but lie in the future. Therefore, not conceiving the form of his universe and regarding it as infinite in all directions, the plain being will nevertheless involuntarily think of the past as situated somewhere at one side of all and of the future at somewhere at the other side of his totality. In such manner will the plain being conceive of the idea of time. We see this idea because the two-dimensional being senses only two out of three dimensions of space. The third dimension he senses only after its effects become manifest upon the plane, and therefore he regards it as something different from the first two dimensions of space, calling it time. Now let us imagine that through the plane upon which the two-dimensional being lives, two wheels with multicoloured spokes are rotating and are rotating in opposite directions. The spokes of one wheel come from above and go below, the spokes of the other come from below and go above. The plane being will never notice it. He will never notice that where for one line, which he sees, there lies the past, and for another line there lies the future. This thought will never come into his head, because he will conceive of the past and the future very confusedly, regarding them as concepts, not as actual facts. But at the same time, he will be firmly convinced that the past goes in one direction and that the future in another. Therefore, it will seem to him a wild absurdity that on one side something past and something future can lie together, and on the other side, and only beside these two, something future and something past. To the plain being, the idea that some phenomena come whence others go, and vice versa, will seem equally absurd. He will tenaciously think that the future is that wherefrom everything comes, and the past is whereto everything goes, and wherefrom nothing returns. He will be totally unable to understand that events may arise from the past just as they do from the future. Thus we will see the plain being will regard the changes in colour of the lines lying on the plane very naively. The appearance of the different spokes he will regard as the change of colour of one and the same line, 
and the repeated appearance of the same coloured spoke he will regard every time as a new appearance of the given colour. But nevertheless, having noticed periodicity in the change of the colour of the lines upon the surface, having remembered the order of their appearance, and having learned to define the time of the appearance of certain spokes in relation to some other more constant phenomenon, the plain being will be in a position to foretell the change of the line from one colour to another. Thereupon he will say that he has studied this phenomenon, and he can apply to it the mathematical method, can calculate it. If we ourselves entered the world of plain beings, then its inhabitants would sense the lines limiting the sections of our bodies. These sections will be for them living beings. They will not know from whence they appear, why they alter, or whether they disappear in some miraculous manner. So also the sections of all our inanimate but moving objects will seem independent living beings. If the consciousness of a plain being should suspect our existence, and should come into some sort of communication with our consciousness, then to him we would appear as higher, omniscient, possibly omnipotent, but above all incomprehensible beings of a quite inconceivable category. We would see his world just as it is, and not as it seems to him. We could see the past and the future, could foretell, direct, and even create events. We could know the very substance of things. We could know what matter, the straight line is, what motion, the broken line, the curve, the angle is. We could see an angle, and we could see the centre. All of this would give us an enormous advantage over the two-dimensional being. In all the phenomena of the world of the two-dimensional being, we could see considerably more than he sees, or could see quite other things than he and we could tell him very much that was new, amazing, and unexpected about the phenomena of his world, provided, indeed, that he could hear us and understand us. First of all, we could tell him that what he regards as phenomena, angles and curves, for instance, are properties of higher figures, that other phenomena of his world are not phenomena, but only parts or sections of phenomena, that which he calls solids are only sections of solids, and many of these things besides we should be able to tell him that on both sides of his plane, i.e. of his space or ether, lies infinite space, which the plane being calls time, and that in this space lie the causes of all his phenomena, and the phenomena themselves, the past as well as the future ones. Moreover, we might add that phenomena themselves are not something happening and then ceasing to be, but combinations of properties of higher solids. But we should experience considerable difficulty in explaining anything to the plain being, and it would be very difficult for him to understand us. First of all, it would be difficult because he would not have the concepts corresponding to our concepts. He would lack necessary words. For instance, section. This would be for him a quite new and inconceivable word. Then angle, again, an inconceivable word. Centre, still more inconceivable. The third perpendicular, something incomprehensible, lying outside of his geometry. The fallacy of his conception of time would be the most difficult thing for the plain being to understand. He could never understand that that which has passed and that which is to be are existing simultaneously on the lines perpendicular to his plane. And he could never conceive the idea that the past is identical with the future because phenomena come from both sides and go in both directions. 
but the most difficult thing for the plain being would be to conceive the idea that time includes in itself two ideas, the idea of space and the idea of motion upon this space. We have shown that what the two-dimensional being living on a plane calls motion has for us quite a different aspect. In his book, The Fourth Dimension, under the heading, The First Chapter in the History of Four Space, Hinton writes, and I quote, Parimenides and the Asiatic thinkers with whom he is in close affinity propound a theory of existence which is in close accord with the conception of a possible relation between a higher and lower dimensional space. It is one which in all ages has had a strong attraction for pure intellect and is the natural mode of thought for those who refrain from projecting their own volition into nature under the guise of casuality. According to Parmenides of the school of Elia, the all is one, unmoving and unchanging, the permanent amid the transient, that foothold for thought, that solid ground for feeling, on the discovery of which depends all our life, is no phantom. It is the image amidst deception of true being, the eternal, the unmoved, the one. Thus says Parmenides. But how is it possible to explain the shifting scene, these mutations of things? Illusion, answers Parmenides. Distinguishing between truth and error, he tells of the true doctrine of the one, the false opinion of the changing world. He is no less memorable for the manner of his advocacy than for the cause he advocates. Can the mind conceive a more delightful intellectual picture than that of Hermenides pointing to the one, the true, the unchanging, and yet on the other hand ready to discuss all manner of false opinion? In support of the true opinion, he proceeded by the negative way of showing the self-contradictions in the ideas of change and motion. To express his doctrine in a ponderous modern way, we must make the statement that motion is phenomenal, not real. Let us represent this doctrine. Imagine a sheet of still water into which a slanting stick is being lowered with the motion vertically downwards. And there are figures here, let 1, 2 and 3, figure 1. They will be on the website. Let 1, 2, 3, figure 1, be three consecutive points on the stick. ABC will be three non-consecutive positions of the meeting of the stick with the surface of the water. As the stick passes down, the meeting will move from A onto B and C. Suppose now all the water to be removed except a film. At the meeting of the film and the stick, there will be an interruption of the film. If we suppose the film to have a property, like that of a soap bubble, of closing up around any penetrating object, then as the stick goes vertically down, the interruption of the film will move on. If we pass a spiral through the film, the intersection will give a point moving in a circle, shown by the dotted lines of figure 2. Again, that will be up on the website. For the plane being such a point moving in a circle in its plane, would probably constitute a cosmical phenomenon, something like the motion of a planet in its orbit. Suppose now the spiral to be still and the film to move vertically upward. The whole spiral will be represented in the film in the consecutive positions of the point of intersection. If instead of the one spiral we take a complicated construction consisting of spirals, inclined and straight lines, broken and curved lines, and if the film can move vertically upwards, we shall have an entire universe of moving points, the movement of which will appear to the plane being as original. The plane being will explain these movements as depending one upon another, and indeed will never happen to think 
these movements are fictitious and are dependent upon the spirals and other lines lying outside of his space. End of quote. Returning to the plane being and his perception of the world, and analysing his relations to the three-dimensional world, we see that for the two-dimensional or plane being, it will be very difficult to understand all the complexity of the phenomena of our world, as it appears to us. He, the plane being, is accustomed to perceive the world as being too simple. Taking into consideration the sections of figures instead of the figures themselves, plane being will compare them in relation to their length and their greater or lesser curvature, i.e. their, for him, more or less rapid motion. The differences between the objects of our world, as they exist for us, he would not understand. The functions of the objects of our world would be completely mysterious to his mind, incomprehensible, supernatural. Let us imagine that a coin and a candle, the diameter of which is equal to that of the coin, are on the plane upon which the two-dimensional being lives. To the plane being, they will seem two equal circles, i.e. two moving and absolutely identical lines. He will never discover any difference between them. The functions of the coin and of the candle in our world, these are for him absolutely a terra incognita. If we try to imagine what an enormous evolution the plane being must pass through in order to understand the function of the coin and of the candle and the difference between these functions, we will understand the nature of the divisions between the plane world and the world of three dimensions and the complete impossibility of even imagining on the plane anything at all like the three-dimensional world with its manifolds and function. The properties of the phenomena of the plane world will be extremely monotonous. They will differ by order of their appearance, their duration and their periodicity. Solids and the things of this world will be flat and uniform, like shadows, i.e. like the shadows of quite different solids which seem to us uniform. Even if the plane being could come in contact with our consciousness, he would never be in a position to understand all the manifolds and richness of the phenomena of our world and of the variety of function of the things of that world. Plane beings would not be in a position to master our most ordinary concepts. It would be extremely difficult for them to understand that the phenomena, identical for them, are in reality different, and on the other hand, that phenomena quite separate from them are in reality parts of one great phenomenon, and even one object or one being. This last will be one of the most difficult things for the plane being to understand. If we imagine our plane being to be inhabiting a horizontal plane, intersecting the top of a tree and parallel to the surface of the earth, then for such a being, each of the various sections of the branches will appear as a quite separate phenomenon or object. The idea of the tree and its branches will never occur to him. Generally speaking, the understanding of the most fundamental and simple things of our world will be infinitely long and difficult for the plane being. He would have to entirely reconstruct his concepts of space and time. This would be the first step. Unless it is taken, nothing is accomplished. Until the plane being will imagine all our universe as existing in time, i.e. until he refers to time everything lying on both sides of his plane, he will never understand anything. In order to begin to understand the third dimension, the inhabitant of the plane must conceive of his time concept spatially, that is, translate his time into space. To achieve even the spark of a true understanding of our world, he will have to reconstruct completely all his ideas. 
to re-evaluate all values, to revise all concepts, to dissever the uniting concepts, to unite those which are dissevered, and, what is most important, to create an infinite number of new ones. If we put down the five fingers of one hand on the plane of the two-dimensional being, they will be for him five separate phenomena. Let us try to imagine what an enormous mental evolution he would have to undergo in order to understand that these five separate phenomena on his plane are the fingertips of the hand of a large, active and intelligent being, man, to make out, step by step, how the plane being would attain to an understanding of our world lying in the region of the, to him, mysterious third dimension, i.e. partly in the past, partly in the future, would be interesting in the highest degree. First of all, in order to understand the world of three dimensions, he must cease to be two-dimensional. He must become three-dimensional himself, or in other words, he must feel an interest in the life of the three-dimensional space. After having felt the interest of this life, he will by so doing transcend his plane, and he will never be in a position thereafter to return to it. Entering more and more within the circle of ideas and concepts which were entirely incomprehensible to him before, he will have already become not two-dimensional but three-dimensional. But all along the plane being will have been essentially three-dimensional. That is, he will have had the third dimension without his being conscious of it himself. To become three-dimensional, he must be three-dimensional. Then, as the end of ends, he can address himself to the self-liberation from the illusion of the two-dimensionality of himself and the world, and to the apprehension of the three-dimensional world. End of chapter 6.